day-to-day life settled into a routine for the men of 663. Major Morgan had received orders from Royal Engineers HQ that his men were to work at various sites along the River Loire, stretching westwards in the direction of the port of Saint-Nazaire. Depending on the skills requested, different sections of the company were transported out by the designated lorry drivers to their assigned locations. Almost all of the men of 663 were time-served tradesmen, carpenters, joiners, electricians or bricklayers. Although there were a number of sites where building work was required north and south of the river, the main focus of work would be carried out at Airport Chateau-Bougon at Bouguenay, today the main airport serving the city of Nantes. This once French military airfield, situated five miles southwest of the city that was to become 663's base, had originally been established in 1928. Back then, the runway was little more than a grassy field with minimal support infrastructure. It lacked a control tower or even accommodation for ground crew. But when the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, arrived in September 1939, the War Office quickly realised they could convert Bougainé into a major support base for the Royal Air Force. Just a few years earlier, in recognition of the apparent militarisation of Germany under the Nazis, the French government began expanding its own military capability there. As part of this effort, through 1936 to 1937, an aircraft factory was built adjacent to the airport. This factory would initially build MB-210 medium-range bombers for the French Air Force, La Armée de l'Air. However, once it was realised that the Hispano Sousa engines were underpowered for the MB-210s, production at the factory was altered. The factory instead focused production on the French fighter aircraft, the Marin Soulnier MS-406, and the more advanced medium bomber, the Leo-45, one of the fastest bombers of World War II. When the BEF arrived, the entire base came under the operational control of the British. The RAF ordered that a distinctive UK-designed control tower known as a watch office be built on the site to enable operations to be commenced without haste. The building, which still stands to this day, albeit in a derelict state of repair, was one of the more advanced watch offices built by the British during World War II. This was a clear recognition that military commanders believed the base would play a vital role not only in air operations against the Germans, but in the production of fighters and bombers from the nearby aircraft factory. 73 Squadron RAF operating Hawker Hurricane fighters were to be based at Bougainé. The squadron had been reformed in March 1937 as the general militarisation of Europe increased in response to the rise of Nazi Germany. 73 Squadron was initially established in 1917 during the First World War. Supported by a small army of RAF ground crew, plans were drawn up to build extensive accommodation blocks, and the job of that construction would fall to the men of 663 Artisan Works Company, Royal Engineers. 
For most of the men, the work was little different from the building work they had undertaken in their various trades before war broke out. Most of the accommodation they built were Nissen huts. These were prefabricated steel structures with a cylindrical shell of corrugated steel designed during the First World War by American-born engineer Major Peter Nissen. The Nissen hut was favoured by the British because it was cheap to produce, flat-packed and it could easily be transported in a standard Bedford Army lorry. Each one could be erected by six men and on average could be put together in four hours. The record set in World War I for erecting a Nissen hut from scratch was one hour, 27 minutes. 100,000 such huts were built during the First War and by the end of World War II a similar number had been erected across Europe and the UK. But as well as accommodation, the sappers of 663 also built concrete stores, toilet and shower blocks and other infrastructure on the base. During February and March, each day the men would be trucked out in the morning, returning in the evening to their billets at Tourville Garage in the city and later Prairie de Ville on the outskirts of Nantes. For entertainment, the men played football in the street outside the garage and later in the evening played cards together. The drivers, Percy Brown, Jimmy Skeels and Freddie Springlet, formed a band together, known imaginatively as the Driver Band, playing instruments they had improvised from various materials from the supply shed. When on leave, the men ventured across the bridge that spans the Loire to explore the cafes and bars in this ancient and picturesque part of the town. But as well as the liquid refreshments, more horizontal pleasures were also on offer. Captain Morgan, 663's commanding officer, was only too aware of the potential moral dangers his men may be tempted by as they explored that part of the city. He was particularly concerned about the risk to those members of the company who were married. During their basic training, shortly before embarkation to France, the men had been given a briefing on the risks of contracting a sexually transmitted disease, or venereal disease, VD, as it was commonly known at the time. Two weeks after arriving in the city, Captain Morgan addressed the entire company and gave them a lecture on the risks posed by interacting with the women working in the nearby red light district. Unable to properly pronounce the letter R when speaking, Morgan told the assembled company, If you men are feeling horny and your passions get aroused, play a game of football. A ripple of laughter and giggling spread through the ranks, but the hilarity didn't last. Morgan added that to ensure the married men of the company complied and did not fritter their 50 francs a week wages away on prostitutes, he would deduct 25 francs each from them. In French, 25 is 25. The married men were assured that the deducted pay would be given back to them on their return to the UK. Thereafter, 663's commanding officer became known by his men as Vansank Morgan. The company were dismissed and broke off into groups to play football. We played a lot of football after that. Reg would later whimsically recall. Days later, the driver band penned and later performed a new song for their pals, 
to the tune of Samuel Wesley's hymn, The Church's One Foundation. Most of the men in 663 were in their early to mid-twenties, and very naive. One Saturday afternoon, having been given a 24-hour leave pass, Cornishman Reg Brown and fellow sappers Bert Harris from Leicester and the diminutive Archie Balls took a stroll across the Pont Aristide Bridge with the intention of visiting the Garden de Plantes de Nantes the stunning municipal botanical gardens in the centre of Nantes that date back to 1688 and contain to this day collections of trees and exotic plants from around the world. The gardens were only a short walk from their billets, but situated in the middle of the city's red-light district. As they strolled along the street in the sunshine, a provocatively dressed woman standing in the entrance to an alleyway, suddenly grabbed Reg's forage cap and rushed inside a doorway. Flustered, Reg stood in the doorway and shouted in. Bert urged Reg to go in and get his cap, but Reg was very reluctant. I was a virgin back then, Reg remembered. I didn't know what went on in there, but I still wanted my cap back. Eventually, all three decided to go in together. Inside there were two other prostitutes, who immediately grabbed Bert and Archie and sat them down at a table that already had two bottles of wine open. The girl who had taken Reg's cap was sitting on a wicker chair at the table next to Bert and Archie, with the stolen property cocked on one side of her head. Reg approached her and in his broken French pleaded for its return. No, no, no. The prostitute replied, waving a finger mischievously at Reg. First you sit here, she said, before getting up and guiding Reg into the chair. Reluctantly, Reg did what he was told, but as soon as he had sat down, the buxom lady sat on his lap, then firmly placed his cap back on Reg's head, then closed for a kiss. With dire warnings of the risks of contracting VD still ringing in his ears, Reg leapt up, causing the woman to stumble backwards. He ran out of the alley at full speed and back over the bridge to the garage. Bert and Archie hurried after, shouting after him, trying to keep up. What happened, Reggie? Bert shouted. Reg ran into their billets and grabbed a large bar of carbolic soap and proceeded directly to the ablutions in the street outside. He opened the buttons on his khaki trousers and started to scrub his genitals vigorously, oblivious to the reality that such a brief encounter had zero chance of him contracting the dreaded VD. He quickly realised, however, that whatever related pain might arise from a sexually transmitted disease, it was nothing to the pain of rubbing acidic carbolic soap into your nether regions. 
Later that evening, Reg recounted his painful experience to the other sappers, his eyes still watering from the effects of his unconventional VD treatment, he told them he believed even the mildest contact with a prostitute would be enough to catch a disease. The other sappers stared at Reg in disbelief, some shaking their heads, grinning. The lorry drivers of 663 experienced more of the region around the city than the rest of the company and retained fond memories of it. Those early months during the phony war, when no real combat was taking place, was a period that most of the sappers of 663 would look back on with fondness. It was like a strange working holiday, one would later say. Sapper Percy Brown, the electrician turned driver, recalled how quickly they settled down into a routine. Occasionally, the icy topper, the company's sergeant major, would come down on the men quite hard, especially if he thought there was too much high jinks taking place among the men. Eventually, and much to Percy's relief, Topper was moved on to another company and replaced by Sergeant Major Miller, an altogether different kettle of fish, Percy remembered. But despite his different approach, CSM Miller was determined to turn these civilians in army uniforms into proper soldiers. Following a day of marching drill, the company were taken down for some rifle practice on the banks of the River Loire. Each man was ordered to kneel and fire five rounds of grouped fire at a target. After each one had fired, Sergeant Major Miller walked down to the target to check it for accuracy. As Percy walked down to the target he had aimed for, with Sergeant Major Miller on his heels, he stared in disbelief at the circular target board. I don't know where yours went to, Sapper, the sergeant noted brusquely. The quick-witted Percy replied, Neither do I, but they definitely left my end all right. With a glowering frown, Sergeant Major Miller said, This isn't funny. The driver's main daily task was to transport the men to the various works, primarily the airport, before delivering supplies, mostly granite chippings and stone blocks in the new Bedford three-ton lorries they had been given. The drivers were rarely pressed hard and most of the supplies were loaded using hoppers, apart from the blocks, which had to be loaded on by hand. Work parties from the Royal Warwickshire Regiment undertook that task. Everything was going swimmingly, Percy recounted years later, until we started to notice at the start of June that the traffic on the roads was getting heavier. Mostly civilians driving small Citroens and Renaults, seemingly packed with everything they owned. Fellow 663 sapper Reg remembered, we didn't know anything that was going on at the time. There wasn't much news or much post. But the crowded roads was the first indication that the real army, 200 miles to the north, was in trouble. The Germans had triggered their attack, codenamed Case Yellow. German armoured divisions were sweeping across the Allied lines and cutting them off from their supply chains to the south of Paris. The German assault would be one of the most stunning, swift and effective armoured military advances in modern history. But in Nantes, Vang Morgan's army continued 
with their routine, oblivious to the dire situation unfolding in the north of the country. When the German attack came, the British Expeditionary Force consisted of ten divisions, divided into three corps, over 300,000 men. The main combat elements were positioned in the north, adjacent to the Maginot Line, a 280-mile-long defensive barrier made from steel and concrete and built by the French following the end of World War I. It was built on the premise that should another European war break out, the line would halt and repel any anticipated German attack. But it had one very important weak point. The Maginot Line did not extend along France's border with Belgium for fear of causing a diplomatic spat with their allies and neighbour. When the Nazi build-up became apparent, work began in earnest to extend the line, but it was to prove too late. Nonetheless, Allied commanders believed that the combined weight of the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, the Belgian Army and France's formidable 1st, 7th and 9th Armies could repel any attack thrown at them by the Germans. But Allied commanders were still, mentally at least, locked in military strategy and tactics that had evolved little since November 1918. On the 10th of May, the German army simultaneously invaded the Netherlands and Belgium, moving rapidly through both countries. At the River Dial, the BEF began a major engagement with German Army Group B, led by General von Bock. By the 14th of May, British commanders realised they could not hold the position, as the Belgian and French armies on their flanks had started to collapse. The order was given to fall back to the Scheldt River. Aghast at the rapid speed of developments, Churchill flew to Paris on the 17th of May to be appraised directly by the French, only to learn from General Maurice Gamelin, the chief of the French army, that he had no reserve troops to throw into the battle. On the 18th of May, BEF commander, British Field Marshal John Vereker, Lord Gort, as he was commonly known, met with the French commander in the north, General Gaston Billot. He was astonished at the demeanour and mental state of the French general, who had broken down in tears when the scale, speed and effectiveness of the German advance became obvious. I can't do anything against these panzer tanks, he told Gort meekly. Alarmed at the apparent breakdown in the French command, the British government then sent Chief of the Imperial General Staff, General Edmund Ironside, to implore the French to, in effect, get a grip. Ironside would later write that he had found the French command in a state of complete depression. No plan, no thought of a plan, ready to be slaughtered, defeated at the head without any casualties. The general noted, Ironside lost his temper and grabbed Belot by his tunic and shook the French general in frustration. The man is completely beaten, Ironside concluded. Shortly afterwards, French Supreme Command ordered their forces southward in what was initially an ordered retreat, but that quickly fell into chaos and disorder. On the 21st of May, after a meeting of French generals at Ypres, Bilot's staff car was involved in an accident and the French general seriously injured. 
he went into a coma and died two days later. The day before, as the Germans continued their advance, Churchill gave orders to the British Admiralty to prepare to send all available boats to France to evacuate what was left of the main Allied fighting force. The British were now trapped. They had a small window to escape, with the entire weight of the Wehrmacht to their front and sides and the sea to their backs. On all sides, the British and remainder of the French and Belgian armies were trying to hold the line. Soon, hundreds of thousands of Allied troops were congregating around the French coastal town of Dunkirk. On the 23rd of May, General Runstead ordered the German advance to pause. This gave the British Army valuable breathing space. The decision to halt the advance has been debated for many decades by historians, but most now agree the reasons for it were sound from the German perspective. The speed of the Nazi assault had not only surprised the Allies, but had also astonished the German command. Before the plan had been implemented, many were doubtful of its success, but it had clearly exceeded all expectations. Nonetheless, the German flanks were vulnerable to any possible counter-attack by the Allies. Their supply lines were extended, but crucially, Rundstedt was aware that the ground around Dunkirk was unusually marshy. Some German panzer units had lost between 30 and 50% of their force during the offensive, and Rundstedt didn't want to risk any more to the marshes around Dunkirk until clear lines of attack had been identified. This enabled the British to organise a vast flotilla of vessels, many small leisure craft, to be sent over the channel to begin taking off the troops from the beaches and the port at Dunkirk. It was a mammoth undertaking, later spun into a supposed miraculous evacuation. But Churchill was under no illusions. No stranger himself to failed military campaigns, Gallipoli and the recent Norway campaign to name but two. The British Prime Minister noted it was the worst military humiliation for British forces since the American Revolutionary Wars. One British soldier, who was fighting with a combat unit of the Royal Engineers and who was wounded on the 3rd of June but still successfully evacuated, added... You can't get a bigger defeat than to be driven literally into the sea, and that's what happened to us at Dunkirk. But despite the obvious German victory, almost 340,000 troops, among them 100,000 French soldiers, were evacuated by the almost 800-strong flotilla of boats sent across the Channel to rescue them. In France they left behind a trail of destruction, destroyed and abandoned equipment lay burning and broken along the roads leading to Dunkirk. After the last boats sailed away from the beaches at Dunkirk on the 3rd of June, what was left of the BEF, namely the 51st Highland Division, consisting of Scottish infantry regiments and led by Major General Victor Fortune and 40,000 French troops, all that was left of France's first army held the last defensive line. The 51st fought on gallantly around the French coastal town of Saint-Valéry, 
Despite being completely surrounded and outnumbered, they launched counter-offensives against the somewhat stunned German invaders, sustaining heavy losses. British High Command had given General Fortune orders to hold the line four times longer than would have normally been expected for a division that was the size of the 51st. On the morning of the 12th of June, nine days after the last man from the beaches at Dunkirk was evacuated, the remainder of the French army surrendered. Running low on ammunition, supplies and even water, 30 minutes later, General Fortune ordered the surrender of the 51st Highland Division. Fortune would become the most senior British military commander captured by the Germans in the whole of World War II. With him, over 10,000 men of the 51st Highland Division became prisoners of war. In the intervening years, historians became critical of the decision to effectively sacrifice the 51st. But what was clear in that moment was that the Battle of France was lost. The BEF had suffered 68 thousand casualties, including 3,500 killed in action during Operation Dynamo and the evacuation at Dunkirk. On the 4th of June, Winston Churchill addressed the House of Commons to relay the news and later repeated his speech in an address broadcast on the BBC World Service. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his flat-bottom boats, and his grand army, he was told by someone, there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Sitting around wireless radio sets at Bougainé Airport, the sappers of 663 looked at each other in bewilderment, though few expressed any real concern. Incredibly, 150,000 British troops were still in France when Churchill made his speech. Finally, on the 14th of June 1940, Company Quartermaster Sergeant Robert Johnson was informed by the Wing Commander of 73 Squadron that they, the RAF, were clearing out. Two large French-built Belmont hangars constructed in 1936, were being used to store RAF supplies and tools. For Sergeant Johnson, this was a quartermaster's dream, but his excitement proved short-lived. The British forces in France were under the command of General Alan Brooke, and by the evening of the 14th of June, he had decided that the situation was hopeless. That night, he was able to reach Churchill on the telephone and convinced him that it was time to evacuate the rest of the BEF before it was too late. After a 10-minute conversation, Churchill agreed. And on the following day, the 15th of June, Operation Ariel began. Operations in Cherbourg, Saint-Malo and Brest 
were relatively trouble-free. The evacuation from Saint-Nazaire was different, with the Germans reportedly at Le Mans, less than 100 miles from Nantes. It was made even more difficult because navigational hazards in the Loire meant that larger ships had to use Quiberon Bay as an anchorage before moving into Saint-Nazaire to pick up men or have them ferried out to the waiting boats. Up to 40,000 troops were believed to be retreating towards Nantes, 50 miles upstream, and so Admiral Dunbar Naismith had decided to begin the evacuation early on the 16th of June. By the end of that first day, 13,000 base troops had been taken on board ships. At 6am on the 16th of June, as the sun began to break over the horizon, Morgan, who had been promoted to the rank of Major days before, formed up the entire company in front of the Belmont hangars at Bougainé. He informed his men that France had capitulated and they were to prepare to leave at once for the coast and the French port of Saint-Nazaire. Once the company were dismissed, Morgan gave the order to Sergeant Johnson for the former RAF store to be thrown open for the men to salvage what they could for themselves. Being artisan tradesmen, Johnson thought it obvious that the men would go for the valuable tools, but instead the sappers scrambled for the store of flutes and whistles. Supplies that could not be transported or carried were covered in chrysote and burned. By 0900 hours the trucks were ticking over, with the driver band members sitting patiently behind the wheel. On reaching the outskirts of Saint-Nazaire, the lorries came to a stop and the men dismounted. As ordered by Major Morgan, Lieutenant Walker and Sergeant Johnson then proceeded by jeep, with nine men from 663 who were carrying the unit's official records and cash for the company's wages. These were then loaded onto the SS Marslu. At dusk on the 16th, this small vessel departed Saint-Nazaire along with nine sappers, and arrived the next day at Avonmouth. After seeing the men off, Walker and Johnson took a stroll around the docks in Saint-Nazaire. Shortly afterwards, they came across an abandoned Navy, Army and Air Force Institute store known as a NAFI. Inside, they found two boxes of woodbines, enough to issue each man in the company with 200 cigarettes each. Johnson went back to collect the jeep before he and Walker loaded it with deserted loot which also included tins of kidney beans and a large jar of rum. They drove back to the rest of the unit, distributed the woodbines and beans before sabotaging the engine of the jeep. The transport lorries that had been driven by Fred Spriglett, Jimmy Skeels and Percy Brown were also destroyed. We put a pickaxe through the radiator and then a brick on the accelerator and left the engines running, Percy would recall. The company formed up and in ranks of three marched across a small bridge over the Le Brivet River that flows into the Loire. Like the thousands of other troops descending on the port, the company would spend the night sleeping on the streets, not far from the main harbour. They spread out ground sheets and kit bags for pillows. Their chemical gas capes provided some protection against the rain that began falling heavily in the early evening. 
Finally, the rum was dished out, but proved too strong for Lieutenant Walker, who grabbed his warrant officer's water bottle to dilute his measure, only to discover the water bottle was full of white wine. An hour later, air raid sirens began to sound as German bombers began to target the dock. Some men, exhausted by the march into the docks and feeling the effects of the rum, managed to fall asleep as flak and tracer bullets bounced off nearby roofs and landed in the street around them. I must have been really dead beat, Percy remembered. I think I was asleep before I hit the cobbles on the street I slept right through the air raids. Shortly after daybreak on the 17th of June 1940, the men were woken and marched towards the docks to be embarked on a small French vessel, the SS Titon. Some local French residents began shouting abuse at the men, implying they were deserting them and leaving them to their fate. It was an undeniable reality, but some of the soldiers felt it was unfair. Nine miles from the port, just visible on the horizon, was a large converted Cunard liner, now a troop ship. Today, they were finally heading home. As the SS Titon ferried the men out to their waiting liner, Walter Hurst stared back at the port and France. He had come here to finish the job his father had begun in 1914, yet here he was, retreating, without having even fired a shot. Saint-Nazaire was their journey's end in France. What tomorrow would bring, no one on board knew. But fate was about to thrust them into a horror that those who survived would never forget. In the next episode, Van Sank Morgan's army reach what they believe is the luxurious safety of a converted Cunard liner that will take them home. But as they board, they see that the decks are packed full of troops and refugees. The liner is chronically overloaded. Then, a German bomber appears, diving out of the glare of the sun, and everything changes for good. <laughs>